Welcome back to TanakhCast. This is episode 57. We'll begin with a brief summation of the first three chapters of the book of Judges and follow the consideration of recidivism. Judges, like Joshua, begins with a previously in TanakhCast, getting us up to date about the famous dead, specifically Yoshua, and how the political situation deteriorates dramatically after his death. Yehuda promised a wide swath of today's Negev, faces a tiresome obstacle to taking full possession of the land. In other words, there are locals. And they aren't taking too kindly to dispossession. Yehuda, with the aid of Shimon, defeat Adoni Bezek and rout his army, and to celebrate, they hack off Adoni Bezek's thumbs and big toes. Four more appendages to add to the pile Adoni Bezek kept of the digits of those he defeated. Yehuda also goes on a winning streak across Canaan, including sacking Jerusalem, defeating the last of the giants Sheshai, Achiman, and Talmai, before heading over to Kiryat Sefer, where Kalev's nephew Otniel captures the city and the hand of Kalev's daughter in marriage. And what follows is a list of wins and some draws, where certain Canaanite city-states withstand the Cheremim, but find themselves as vassals to the Jews. Or not. Sound familiar? It should be, because up until now, Judges has been doing a serious recap of the end of the book of Yehoshua. Except after verse 11 in chapter 2, where we witness the first of many iterations of Jews screwing up. Quote, And the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and they served the Baalim, and they forsook the Lord God of their fathers, blah, 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 yada, yada, yada. And so the basic plot of the book of Judges is sketched clearly in broad strokes, a circle of strife, which begins with the Jewish people forgetting themselves and their promises, which results in wholesale whoring after other gods, and God's anger taking the shape of the lash of oppression at the hands of foreigners. But God also forgives. So when the Jews cry out and repent, God sends a judge to come and save them. The Jews, then basking in the glow of liberation, return to God until... and you know the rest. Chapter 3 actually lists the peoples God allowed to survive on the onslaught to serve as a perpetual thorn in the side of the Jewish people, in case the Jews think about whoring, intermarriage, and idolatry again. And to keep things interesting, there were many members of the Oppressor of the Month Club. It's the deep breath before the plunge. So let's give the cycle its first spin. The Jews, fat and content in their land, go a-whoring and intermarriaging... So God sends Kushanri Shatayim, the king of Aram Naharaim, who forces the Jews to submit to his rule, which lasted eight miserable years. Dear God, was that necessary? <laughs> and so Otniel ben Kenaz, the Judahite, appears on the scene. Yippee-ki-yay, motherfucker. And the Jews are freed, and quote, the land was quiet for 40 years. And in the blink of an eye, 40 years pass, and we're on to round two of the Circle of Strife. <laughs> and so Eglon, king of Moab, is emboldened by God, and he musters the Ammonites and the Amalekites. Say what? Okay, I guess there are some Amalekites left. And they force the Jews to submit to their rule. 18 years of toil and suffering. And so Ehud ben Gera from the tribe of Benjamin appears on the scene. Yippee-ki-yay, motherfucker. 
Eglon, it seems, is an extremely obese man, and when Ehud hints that he has a special secret message for the king, they are left alone, at which point Ehud stabs Eglon in his belly, and the king's fat rolls swallow up the blade, so that when Ehud departs suddenly, none of the king's attendants realizes that the king has been fatally stabbed. The Moabites are in disarray, so when Ehud rallies his men and attacks, the victory is complete and quick. End quote. The land was quiet 80 years. The third turn of the circle of strife is a quickie. One verse. Quote, and after him there was Shamgar ben Anat, and he struck down the Philistines 600 men with an ox goad, and he too rescued Israel. Thus endeth the summation, and beginneth the consideration. I sense your impatience. They got a name for people like you, hi. That name is called recidivism. Repeat offender. One would think that after all the hectoring and nudniking from Moshe and from Yehoshua and all those contracts and standing stones and all the reminders and all the lived suffering that is alleviated almost immediately when folks return to the path, that folks would remain faithful to God. One would think, knowing full well the costs, that folks would resist the temptations of the Baalim and Asherot and sacred orgies and all that. One would think, having tasted not one, not two, but three strokes of the lash, that folks would say, hmm, maybe there is a lesson to be learned here. But no. And I think I've come up with an explanation beyond the archetypal people are stupid or history repeats itself. Here it is. Ready? Every generation makes its own consensus, its own norms, and its own mistakes. And, by the way, one hopes that each generation's mistakes become readily apparent and fixed soon after they're made. Otherwise, it's the mess is left for the next generation to clean up, or in its most benign form, it amounts to the grandkids leveling a withering look at you and saying, Eating cows? What were you thinking? But if you go back and look at the stretch of time in between each turn of the circle of strife, There's almost two generations after Othniel ben Kenaz does his fine work. That's a lot of time for opinion to shift about exclusive God worship. Look, the first generation growing up with a new feeling of liberation from Aram Naharaim, there's a lot of good feeling there for the old-time religion. It's been vindicated after all, but the people's memory is short. And by the time those little kids grow up and get cellular phones of their own, well, all bets are off. And then those kids grow up and have a kids of their own, who have never known a world without internet. And the idea of simply sitting quietly and without their thumbs being engaged by email or text messaging or tweeting or checking some random fact on Wikipedia, that thought is just unbearable. So when someone comes along and says, hey, remember penmanship? The only fitting reaction to that comment is a blank stare. But I digress. Or then again, I think the point is made. Exclusive God worship by Generation 3 is as good idea sounding to them as the slide rule is to us. Yes, it's reliable and powerful, but do I have an overwhelming need to learn how to use it? when I have no intention of using it anyway? I have a smartphone, come on! So it's not surprising then, after 40 years of peace in the land, that the Jews go off the rails again. They could barely see the rails at all at that point. So when Ehud guts Eglon, he buys the Jews 80 years of peace. I could get with 80 years of peace, especially if I was born in year 5. But then I think of 2004's Battlestar Galactica reboot, which, from a biblical perspective, captures one turn of the circle of strife in a fairly dramatic fashion. 
The Cylons are created by humans to do all the heavy lifting in the 12 colonies of Cobol. Then one day, they strike out at their former masters, and after a bloody conflict, the Cylons are sent off to a different planet, where every year since the repatriation, the Colonials send an officer to a way station to check on the Cylons, and for 40 years, that aging officer sits in an empty room, until one day, after 40 years, a tempting female appears flanked by two Cylon robots. She crosses the room, sidles up to the shocked officer, and coos, are you alive? And when he replies yes, she says, prove it, and they lock in a passionate kiss. But this kiss is like the complacency of the Twelve Colonies. It's a facade. A missile from a silent ship blasts the way station, but not before the woman says, it has begun. And we know what happens next. The Cylons attack. They destroy the Twelve Colonies of Cobol. From a population of billions, only 50,000 humans remain. Of a once glorious fleet, the only decommissioned Battlestar Galactica remains, commanded by the sage and old-fashioned Adama, who saves humanity because he wisely refused the installation of a network computer system on board. After all the twists and turns, spoiler alert, the surviving humans and the humanoid Cylons settle on a new planet. They discard all technology and destroy the surviving fleet by flying it into the sun. They hope to start again, but hope to do so with, take note, a different set of ethics, a different way of doing things, one that won't lead to creating robot servants who will eventually rise up and kill their masters. So in theory, the Galactica folks set out not to repeat their mistakes, but in classic judges style, the final scene suggests that despite the passage of tens of thousands of years, creating robot servants is precisely what the humans are going to do, which suggests a very different way of looking at judges, that each turn of the circle of strife will inevitably result in yet another turn because we cannot help but repeat our history, because we forget our history, because we are what we are, which is flawed. And for that, be it in the land of Canaan or today, we inevitably pay a very high price. If you like what you heard today, tell a friend. Send them an email to say, hey, you should check out TanakhCast. Or you could do the social media thing and like TanakhCast at the show pages on Facebook or Google+. Or you could leave a kind word in the comments section at thenextjew.com. Or write a brief review at the iTunes store. Or find TanakhCast at Stitcher Smart Radio or SoundCloud and leave a kind word there. It's a small thing, really, but it will help me and help other people find TanakhCast. And I thank you in advance for that. And encourage you to come on back and join us next week-ish for episode 58, when we continue in the Book of Judges with chapters 4 through 7 with special guest Karen Aviv.